all ninjas. Calling all ninjas. It's time for Lime Ninja Radio. Today on Lime Ninja Radio. Protoplasm is able to make sure that dopamine and serotonin get made properly. And, and again, I'm not going to go into all of the different functions, but what I would use as an analogy is we, we, we drive cars today that have a computer chip. This podcast is sponsored by the Lime Ninja Symptom Tracker. I'm so excited to tell you about our new Lime Ninja Symptom Tracker. One of the things I hear over and over again, whether it's talking to a patient in my office or consulting over the phone with a client, is just how difficult it is to keep track of progress on their Lyme journey. Recording symptoms daily or even weekly gives them too many data points. There are so many ups and downs, twists and turns that at some point they get lost and confused. The Lyme Ninja Symptom Tracker takes all the guesswork out of tracking symptoms with a simple monthly questionnaire. Once a month is the perfect interval to see if that new supplement or protocol is working. Right now, when you take the Symptom Tracker questionnaire, we give you a simple composite score for the month. But we have big plans and the data you enter will not be lost as we roll out new features. Best of all, it's free. Just head on over to LimeNinjaRadio.com slash tracker and sign up. That's LimeNinjaRadio.com slash tracker. You'll be glad you did. Join us every Thursday on iTunes for the latest episode of Lime Ninja Radio. Hello, I'm your Lime Guide and acupuncturist McKay Rippey, and this is episode number 239 with our good friend Morley Robbins. Also welcome the show producer and brains behind Lime Ninja Radio, Miss Aurora. Hello. Good morning. And in this episode, you'll learn three main things. What ceruloplasma is and how it helps your immune system. What ascorbic acid does to disrupt your immune system. And what role copper has in healing your body from inflammation. Thanks, Aurora. And a big shout out to all you longtime Lime Ninjas, you're the reason we have half a million downloads. Aurora and I really, really appreciate you tuning in. And also, thanks for putting up with our, I don't even know what to call it, hiccups that we've had over the past, I don't know, six, eight weeks, something like that. Our publishing schedule has been disrupted. We've missed a few weeks. We've been late. We're late with this one. Some of that is just us and life on the farm in the summer. We'll randomly come home and... Our grandfather will be... Your grandfather. My, my father-in-law. 80-year-old grandfather is bailing hay and putting Didn't it up anybody. on wagons. Yes, he just kind of does that on his own. Make hay while the sun shine. Yep. He does that. And so we have to put everything on hold and go help him carry hay and put it up in the barn. That's just the way things are on a little tiny farm like we have. So there's that excuse. The other thing that happened, our, some of our website features were down. My account got hacked. My my banking account, checking account got hacked. So I had to change my credit card. So as you know, when you do that, all that you pay automatically with the credit cards gets, you have to remember to do everything. And the website host for some of these functions didn't have my right email address. So they're trying to contact me and say, hey, where's the money? So eventually they just shut things down. So if you tried to get on the website and, for example, get into some of our special features 
such as the symptom tracker, maybe some of the other things, you probably would have gotten an error message. And we're sorry about that. It's just, you know, things happen. So we've been a bit of a mess. We're going to try and clean that up. That's our intention here. And that's a long way of saying thanks for sticking with us in the good times and the bad. I feel much closer to all you and, out there now. And the hot mess times. <laughs> and the hot mess time. We've been a little bit of a hot mess. And it is a hot mess this summer. All right. Aurora, tell us a little bit more about today's guest, Morley Robbins. Morley had been a hospital executive and consultant for 32 years until he developed Frozen Shoulder, which opened his eyes to the power of natural medicine and set him on his path of becoming an expert on the interplay between magnesium, copper, and iron metabolism. Through his magnesium advocacy group, he is committed to educating as many people as possible about the importance of iron toxicity and how magnesium and copper help regulate well-being. Okay, McKay, why did you want to talk to Morley today? As you know, we have divided up your Lyme journey into three phases. The preparation phase, the reboot phase, where you have to get your mind wrapped around things, get your budget organized around it, figure out what exactly you're dealing with. And then the second phase is the resolve is like get into action, get rid of all these infections that you've either picked up from the tick or have were dormant in you like Epstein-Barr and now are front and center or maybe Lyme or maybe parasites, all these different things that have to be cleared out. And then the last is restore, is to heal from your months, maybe years of battling a chronic illness. That can take a lot out of you. So those are the three phases. Morley fits in with the beginning of phase two. I like his root protocol as a fundamental starting point for cleaning up your diet. You know, we do a lot with the ketogenic diet here. I have great faith in that as well. The paleo, we've talked about autoimmune paleo diet. I think that's a good option as well. Morley starts with really basics, cleaning out the junk from your diet, as well as adding in nutrient-dense foods like liver. Yes, I said the L word. (laughs) (laughs) But you can do liver capsules. They're great sources of very clean liver out there from New Zealand and places like that. Though we don't talk, we talk a lot about the biochemistry in this interview, but take a moment, go to Morley's website, look at the root protocol and use that as a template for getting your diet together. You have to have your diet together to regulate inflammation and to give you the basic building blocks you need to fight off an infection. And the root protocol and what Morley does is a good place to start. So that's why we've got Morley on here, and that's why we keep bringing him back. All right, that said, here's our interview with our good friend Morley Robbins. So let's dive in. Okay. And do you want to start with vitamin C? <laughs> or should we begin somewhere else? I, I think it's, uh, I, I think it'll have more impact if we put vitamin C in the context of people's understanding of what ceruloplasm does in the body. Okay. <clears throat> because it's, I think there's such a gross misunderstanding about how our body works 
and there's a gross misunderstanding about how to measure the viability of our copper iron metabolism, that we need to clear that confusion up. And then we can talk about the gross violation of ascorbic acid to the most important protein in the human body. Okay. Let's do that. Okay. So what are the basics of ceruloplasmin? I can't even say it right. Well, it is a mouthful. And it's a, a protein that was first hinted at in very important research that was done by Otto Warburg and Hans Krebs in 1927. And what they did was they bled birds to the point of near death because they wanted to create a true state of iron deficiency. So give us the foundation of ceruloplasm. Where, how was it discovered? You know, what did they think it's doing in the body? And what's the you know, current research? Why is this such an important protein? Okay. So it, I think it's uh, at, at the risk of sounding um, alarmist. I think it's the God particle inside our body, to be honest. But we'll, we'll explain that more in, in a little bit. Um, this, this protein, again, the, what runs allopathic and conventional medical thought is one gene, one protein, one function. And that's the uh, prevailing paradigm of Western medicine. And what's important about ceruloplasm is it is one gene, it is one protein. When it was first discovered, there were eight copper atoms. Now there are six. Nobody can explain where the two went. But for a 30-year period, there were eight. Then for a 30-year period, there were seven. And now we're supposed to accept the fact that there's only six, for whatever reason. And what I've identified now are 24 separate and distinct enzyme functions that this one protein is able to um, engage in. And its origin goes back to 1927. So 20 years before its formal discovery in 1948, in 1927, uh, two of the greats, Otto Warburg and Hans Krebs, were doing experiments with copper and iron. That was the obsession of the leading biochemists uh, in that era, from 1910 to about 1950. The obsession was around copper and iron, because they were trying to understand how the cell makes energy. <clears throat> and and only those are the only two metals that can react with oxygen. And they're called redox reactive metals. Reduction oxidation. They, they're the only metals that can play with oxygen. Uh, and And if the conditions are right, everything's good. If the conditions are not right, there's a lot of rust that gets given off. And therein lies the, the essence of the problem. But in 1927, Warburg and Krebs did a very famous experiment with birds by bleeding them out to the point of near death, 
because it created a true state of iron deficiency. That, that there was an absolute deficiency of iron because the blood was out of these birds. And they wanted to see what was the metabolic response of the body. And what they were surprised to learn was that, lo and behold, there was a three to six-fold increase in copper enzymes. They didn't know what it was. They just knew it was a copper enzyme. That was the sophistication of biochemistry back then. They at least knew what, that it was an enzyme, that it was a copper enzyme, but it hadn't been identified, and it wouldn't be identified for another 20 years. And this was a, a breakthrough discovery. And this was um, actually two years after Warburg had done his breakthrough research on the mitochondria, which then led him to get the Nobel Prize in 1931. Uh, and what's important for people to know is that he wasn't studying uh, oxygen in its natural state uh, that you would find in the mitochondria. He was, they were using molecular oxygen, and that's not what's in the mitochondria. It's, it's a different state of oxygen. And he said the reason why is because, because iron and oxygen are very reactive, so we couldn't use that. So his Nobel Prize was based on a synthetic study of the mitochondria, not an actual study of the mitochondria. So there's the first chink in the armor, is that what, what was he really studying? But, but two years after that important research in 1925, he's discovering that there's a, an explosion of copper enzymes in the blood following this uh, withdrawal of blood. And he and Krebs clearly concluded that copper has a very important and regulatory role over iron metabolism. And they weren't the only two. There was a leading team of scientists at the University of Wisconsin in Madison, headed up by Conrad LVM, and they had two very important studies in 1928, so right on the heels of this uh, bird study. And it's very clear from their work that uh, Copper was essential for making hemoglobin. They proved that in 1928. And they also proved that if copper is withheld from an animal, iron builds in the liver. That, they knew that 90 years ago. That, that was an established scientific fact. And so for the next 20 years, people are tinkering around with this copper proteins and, and enzymes. And it was formally uh, discovered, or it was formally identified I think in 1941, and initially written about by um, Dr. Holmberg in Sweden in 1945, but it wasn't until 1948 to 1951 where they where Holmberg and Laurel, his his uh, partner, uh, did a series of four studies to really establish the chemical and biochemical and physiological understanding of ceruloplasmin. They're the ones that named it sky blue, sky blue in the in the plasma. That's what ceruloplasma means. And and this protein, when it has when it's properly loaded with copper, emits a very intense sky blue light. It's very unique in biochemistry because of its structure and its uh, uh, copper composition. It emits a very distinctive color, and it in fact is that 
there's, a, there's, if you will, two triangles of copper. One is bigger than the other. The, the, the one that's the more functional of the two is called a trinuclear center, where the coppers are literally sitting on top of each other. And because of their proximity to each other, they emit this blue light. Now, the, the only thing that's more confusing than what we're talking about, McKay, is understanding the physics of light. Now, I don't know whether you've ever delved into absorption spectrums, and um, it's, it's another world. And so I have a very basic working knowledge of what's going on. But, but what I do know is that the scientists who were studying this protein were reverential about its ability to emit this blue light. So, so is, uh, it, is it emitting light or just reflecting that wavelength? Uh, as I understand it, it is, it is emitting that light. Huh, that's wild. It is wild. There, so I know a, there, there are some cells that are photoluminescent, right, and this would right. make, make one of them. Right. So it's a, it's a very unique property to this protein. And so, so then the, the real big breakthrough for me was, um, well, let's see. So there have been a number of authors who've studied this. So Holmberg and Laurel studied it extensively for um, not just that 48 through 51, for another 10 years they were intensely studying it. Um, this team in Wisconsin, University of Wisconsin, uh, studied ceruloplasm very extensively in the 1920s and 30s and early 40s. Uh, and then there was another team at the University of Utah headed up by George E. Cartwright uh, and Dr. Weintraub. Um, and they were in the 40s, 50s, 60s, and 70s studying ceruloplasm very intensely because they knew how important it was. And, and yet today, you could do a survey of a thousand physicians of all walks, whether they're, you know, acupuncturists or naturopaths or allopaths, whatever. They don't even know what it is. They, they remember one lecture on Wilson's disease and there was some reference to ceruloplasm and they tucked it away and that's it. And that now it's, it's being told to practitioners that ceruloplasm is an acute phase reactant protein for inflammation. And that's pretty much what they know. So that so what's being taught now is that like you twist your ankle, you get a lot of inflammation. You're going to find ceruloplasm showing up there. That's what right. that means, right. right? Yeah. And so 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 it reacts to a problem, and we don't know what it does. And gosh, we don't really understand this. And and the the literature, the modern literature, repeatedly says well, we don't really fully understand its function. Well, the only reason why they don't fully understand its function is they don't take the time to read the studies that apparently. I've uncovered that very clearly tell you what its function is. So, and so, and that's what I was going to ask about these studies. So are these studies, you know, I've, we've both read a lot of play, papers and some of them are just trying to get a hand on what the protein is, what the enzyme is and how it's structured and what it reacts with. And it's really kind of test tube experiments. Now, were they also doing functionals? Like what is this protein yeah. doing in the body? Absolutely. Yeah, and and they studied it in mice and rats, rabbits, dogs, pigs, and humans. They, they, this is not. This has been a subject of intense inquiry 
for 90 years, or cer certainly, uh, yeah, I would say 90 years, given that 1927 is when Warburg and Krebs first identified these copper proteins in the blood. They knew, they knew it was something important because it was the first response to the crisis of, of no iron. And so uh, this is, again, what we have to understand is that in the world of, of, of medical schools, there's, there's a Chinese wall. And on one side of the Chinese wall, they teach practitioners how to clinically treat conditions. And on the other side of the Chinese wall, they fund research to find out what's the answer. But, that, but, the, but the, the latter is not necessarily fed to the former. But the breakthrough research, you know, as one of my colleagues who's a chiropractor said, he was somewhat uh, skeptical about this when he first heard about it, understandably so. And as he got into the research, he said, and he said this to his colleagues recently at a, at a training session, he said, guys, this, 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 is, this is, research is readily available. He said, I didn't believe it when I first started getting into it. He said, it, 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 there's no question. The research is there. It's just not being taught. And that's the distinction, is that this, this um, scientific truth is is known, and so you've got you know Holmberg and Laurel who studied it intensely, you know uh, LVM and um, Waddell and Steinbach and Hart studied it at University of Wisconsin and Cartwright and Roser and Weintraub and a whole bunch of other people studied it very intensely. Then you've got Paul Fox at the, the uh, Cleveland Clinic in uh, Ohio. He's written forty-seven articles on ceruloplasm, probably the world's authority on it. And he's figured out how to silence the ceruloplasm gene, which makes me very uneasy. Um, but he's not the only one. I just came across an article today by Zena Leah Harris, who's a professor of pediatrics at the Northwestern uh, Feinberg School of Medicine. And she and uh, one of her colleagues, Dr. Gitlin, were the ones that discovered what's a condition called aceruloplasmonemia, which is the body's not able to make ceruloplasm. They, they claim it's because of a genetic defect. I would argue that it's probably because of missing substrates, like there's no copper, there's no retinol, there's no, not enough magnesium ATP and a variety of other factors. But the point is, aceruloplasmonemia proved beyond a shadow of a doubt in 1999 when it was absolutely um, identified that a lack of bioavailable copper, and that's what ceruloplasm represents, but a lack of bioavailable copper causes iron loading in the liver and in the brain. And it's a, it's a very well-established mechanism for iron overload in the human metabolism. It's Again, it's been studied in people, not, not in test tubes. So walk us through what happens when iron starts to accumulate in the liver, brain, whatever tissue. Well, I think the listeners understand rust, right? It creates... It creates, it creates a limitless supply of oxidative stress. And what is oxidative stress? It's rust. And so the, the mitochondria, the, the, here, let's back up a step, because I, I, I appreciate how you're trying to um, peel back this onion very carefully. But let's start with the fact that we live on a planet that has oxygen. And in fact, that oxygen wasn't always on this planet. So the, so the, the, the big time frames are 
Um, 11 billion years ago, our solar system formed. Uh, they claim that about 4.5 billion years ago, the Earth formed. And 2.45 billion, I love that, 0.45. It's really, I, th- I love how these astrophysicists They're so get accurate, down. right? They're so <laughs> accurate. Don't you love that? So, so 2.450 zero billion yeah. years ago, um, oxygen appeared on this planet. And when it did, 99% of life disappeared. Because, because up until that point, the life forms, they were anaerobic. And they were living off the energy of iron. And iron, in fact, represents 36% of the Earth's composition. So we are, we are an iron planet, yet we have oxygen. And the salvation happened at that uh, event 2.45 billion years ago. It's called the Great Oxygen Event, when the phytoplankton started splitting water in the ocean and emitted oxygen. And it didn't all happen at once, of course. It was building. But over some period of time, was it 0.1267 billion years? Who knows? I mean, we don't know how long it took. But the fact of the matter is, as oxygen became more concentrated in our atmosphere, there were three elements that appeared on this planet, according to the fossil records, almost simultaneously. One was copper appeared. Secondly, our enzymes called multi-copper oxidases, and that's a very fancy way of saying it's a copper enzyme that allows us to work with oxygen, to so activate is, is it. Is ceruloplasm in one of those? It, 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 is, it is considered, uh, the phrase that's used is ceruloplasm is the key exemplar of the multi-copper oxidases. It's the, it's the quintessential of the multi-copper oxidases. And what makes them so special is these enzymes take one molecule of oxygen and turn it into two molecules of water. And that's a big metabolic deal. And that's what allows our mitochondria to do what they do. And so we've got copper, multi-copper oxidases that run on copper, And then we have a third element that appears at at the same time called cholesterol. You've heard of it, right? It's the element that causes heart disease, right? Wink, wink. Maybe. Maybe, of course. So what's important for the listeners to understand about cholesterol is that in order to make one molecule of cholesterol, you've got to use 11 molecules of oxygen. So what is cholesterol? It is an oxygen sink. And, and Mother Nature realized that that was going to be very important. There's a very clever cartoon about it, and it's a picture of a fish in the water talking to the first lungfish that's outside of the water. And the fish in the water says, hey, you better be careful. That, that oxygen could kill you. And the lungfish turns back to its colleague in the water and says, oh, I'm not worried. My doctor says my cholesterol is really high. And so that's what allowed animals to get out of the water was the cholesterol. And I think it's very curious that it goes back to the beginning of the great oxygen event, that that we've been trained like circus bears to believe that cholesterol is the bad guy, when in fact it's the very essence of why we're able to be on this planet. So we've got these very important components. And then we come 
forward 2.45 billion years ago, um, or to come forward 2.45 billion years to the present day, and practitioners are being taught that ceruloplasm is a, it's a sign of inflammation. But, but what we really find out is that what is inflammation? Let's take a quick bunny trail down there real fast. So it turns out that, that because of all this oxygen, there's only two, there's only two paths for oxygen. Either we're going to create energy, because we turn that oxygen, we activate that oxygen molecule and turn it into water. And when that transaction occurs, ADP, three ADP, get released and go to complex five of the mitochondria to become three magnesium hyphen ATP. And that's the source of energy for all our cells. Or if we're not going to create energy, we're going to create exhaust. That's the only choice that you have with oxygen. Either you're going to make energy or you're going to make exhaust. And that exhaust is called oxidants. And everyone's heard of antioxidants, but they don't think about anti-what? Well, the oxidant is an oxygen molecule that has been changed by too much electrons. And so O2 becomes H2O2. That's hydrogen. Oh, no, first, first, excuse me, it becomes superoxide. So it becomes O2 with an extra electron, and it's very grumpy about it. And that superoxide molecule needs to be changed into hydrogen peroxide. And, and there are elegant enzymes that do that, just that, like catalase and glutathione peroxidase. And so that, that hydrogen peroxide, then if it's not treated by catalase and glutathione peroxidase, will mix with iron, because it's readily found in the tissue, and that will become what's called the hydroxyl radical. And that hydroxyl radical is what dings the DNA. It's what dings uh, the proteins. And it's what dings the lipids in our membranes to cause the oxidation or the rusting of different cellular components of the, of the tissue. So and so this, this gradual process just unfolds naturally because of the presence of oxygen. Right. Let's pause there for a second because this oxidation happens as a matter of respiration. So you can be 100% the healthiest person on the planet and you're still having some oxidation going on because your mitochondria are working. So that's just a natural part of what's going on. And right. our immune system can crank out gobs and gobs and gobs of these oxidants in an effort to kill an invasion or what it thinks is an invasion in the exactly. case of an autoimmune disease. So let, I just wanted to get that there. That So now what role do these copper enzymes, this ceruloplasmin and its friends have to do with that process? Okay. So we go back to the choice, create energy, or the, what the cell wants to do is either create energy or clear exhaust. You know, cells not trying to create exhaust; it's trying to clear it. No, it has and, to. So you're gonna you right. Fire you got, it. Yeah, you got your furnace in the basement. You yeah, just, you gotta get gotta get rid of it. Yeah. So, so the the, the mitochondria where they where energy is created, the the essence of the mitochondria is complex four, and the enzyme in complex four is called cytochrome C oxidase, and it's a it's a copper enzyme that has three coppers in its essence, 
that allows it to respire, to turn oxygen into water. That's the gift of copper in the mitochondria. But then copper keeps on giving because the enzymes that clear the exhaust, clear the oxidants, are all copper-based enzymes. So we have we have ceruloplasmin as the head of the stream. That's the master antioxidant protein in the body. We have superoxide dismutase. That was discovered in 1963 by Joe McCord and his um, and his mentor at, at Duke University. We have uh, catalase. We have glutathione peroxidase. We have paraoxinase in the in the uh, HDLs, and there's a whole series of, of copper-based enzymes that have a unique ability to work with those oxidants and keep them from becoming exhaust. They, they work very carefully with, with this oxygen molecule and its variations so that it doesn't create problems. Because you're absolutely right, uh, in a normal mitochondria, about 3% of that oxygen is going to go rogue. Uh, 3% of, of um, Hemoglobin is going to go rogue, and that's going to create oxidative stress. And as you very aptly pointed out, people in autoimmune, they're, they're spitting out oxidants as part of the immune function, but, but that, that's when it gets out of control, that's when it becomes a problem. And so the, there's a hierarchy to oxidative stress. And this, this is the work of, of Rydell and... Um, Ah, this is like 1982. I can't think of the other author's name, but Rydell is a very recognized biochemist. In any event, he had a three-phase model for oxidative stress. Phase one is, wow, we've got a building reactive oxygen species. We've got building oxidants. We need more support from our antioxidant enzymes, which are, for the most part, copper-driven. And that's phase one. Phase two is called inflammation. That's when the level of, of oxidants starts to outstrip the, the level of being able to work with the oxygen. And so then all sorts of chemicals get released, cytokines, and genes start to, to function. A very important gene called the hypoxia-inducible factor gene, which is a very deeply conserved gene in our body. It's, it's, it's sensing oxygen in the body. And if it senses that the oxygen is going the wrong way, well, it's going to fire off 60 other genes to make sure that there's a response to it. So what people need to understand is that, that the terms inflammation and hypoxia and hydrogen peroxide all mean the same thing. Inflammation is not a disease. It's a state of oxidative stress that has been coined hypoxia. And it doesn't mean we're at altitude. It doesn't mean that we have a lack of oxygen. It means we have a lack of usable oxygen. And it not, has nothing to do with oxygen. It has everything to do with copper. Because if you don't have bioavailable copper, then the oxygen is not usable. And in that state of metabolism, where there is a buildup of, of hypoxia, there's a lot of hydrogen peroxide that's being produced. And what is hydrogen peroxide? It's a condensed form of oxygen that's not usable if you don't have copper to neutralize it 
and get it into a form of water that the body can work with. So that's that's the real breakdown is that all of this oxidative stress is caused by a lack of bioavailable copper and an overabundance of iron. And then phase three of this hierarchical model is, it's called cytotoxicity or cell death. There's a point where the cell cannot sustain the level of oxidation, the level of rusting, and it basically goes into a state of either apoptosis or necrosis, depending upon the conditions. And th those are the three stages of oxidative stress. There's mild inflammation and death, would be the way that Rydell would characterize it. And so when we understand that, then we begin to say, well, well where's ceruloplasm in all this? Well, if, if the, the body is not able to properly load copper into that protein because copper is missing from the diet, retinoic acid is not available because retinol is not in the diet, not, not synthetic retinol, you know, animal-based retinol. If there isn't enough magnesium and magnesium ATP, no can do. And and the big surprise is that they found that when when there's adequate chloride in the in the plasma, the functionality of ceruloplasm doubles. So that when they take chloride out of the plasma, I don't know how they do that, but this again research back to the 1950s, Holmberg and Laurel discovered that when they took chloride out, ceruloplasm still worked, but it was half as effective. When they allowed normal levels of chloride into the plasma, the functionality doubled, 100% increase in functionality. So there's some very key components that are needed in order for ceruloplasm to work its, its magic. And then we find out that it's, it's not a one-trick pony. As, as Ben Edwards, my, my uh, physician colleague over in Lubbock, Texas, likes to say, it's a Swiss army knife on steroids. And you find out that there's 24 different functions, that it's able to uh, clear all sorts of oxidants, that it's able to uh, neutralize nitric oxide if it gets out of control. It's able to neutralize myeloperoxidase, which is a, is a uh, chemical that's given off by pathogens that creates a substance called hypochlorous ion, which is very destructive, as you, as you very well know. And Ceruloplasm prevents that from happening. Ceruloplasm neutralizes the uh, overactivation of neurotransmitters. Ceruloplasm is able to make sure that dopamine and serotonin get made properly. And, and again, I'm not going to go into all of the different functions, but what I would use as an analogy is we, we drive cars today that have a computer chip. And all you got to do is Google automobile computer chip, and there are pictures of all these different functions that this little tiny piece of, it's not even a half-inch square, that little piece of, of computer chip is monitoring about 40 different functions inside the car. So we've, we've grown accustomed to that, but we didn't know that this protein that was first known about in 1927, first formally written about in 1948, and as recently as 2019, this Xena 
Leah Harris article. It's, it's a, in a textbook from 2019 on Wilson's disease. She does a masterful job of explaining what this protein does in a, in a way that I've never seen it described. I just happened to find it this morning. And so it's like, I'm like giddy with delight that, that, that I know who she is, where she is, and I'm going to meet with her in, in Chicago when I'm up there in the middle of uh, August. So it's like, the thing is, this protein is behind the curtain, and it's not being taught to practitioners. It's certainly not being taught to the public. And I've been, I've been talking about this for about five years now, but I'm at a level of understanding now that's completely different today than it was even a year ago. So is one of the reasons that this protein is invisible is because is it part of primary pathways or secondary pathways? So do you understand my question? So is it like the relief valve for a lot of these processes that really shows up when there's a problem? Or is it and, and is that why it's kind of been but people are studying all these major pathways and you know kind of ceruloplasm doesn't come into play because it's not needed at the time because we're just studied physiological processes and and we're not looking as deeply into like the pathological processes in vivo right because we we identified the main pathway and that's what's working and so <laughs> we just see the main pathway break down and so we try to figure out a drug rather than say okay where's this emergency so do i have that right or i'm just just no i think grassier? I, no 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 i think you're asking a really important question we have to go back historically and say our ancestors didn't have this level of illness go back go back 100 years do you think your great-great-grandparents were were living at walgreens like our people do like our colleagues do no this is we we, we have been we have been very we, we are the frogs being boiled one degree at a time. And so now we've grown up thinking that everyone's broken. And when you find out that, that what is a normal level of ceruloplasm in a human being in 1948 was 45 units of ceruloplasm. I typically, in the, blood, in the blood test that I do, I typically see the range between 18 and 22, okay? And so then we find out that Let's, let's jump over to pigs, because for a lot of years, a lot of centuries, our ancestors ate pigs, right? Because they, they knew they were really healthy, and, and it turns out that the normal level of ceruloplasm in a pig is 160 units of ceruloplasm. So that, what, a, what a great way to supplement your diet is to eat a pig that's got all this protein. Well, then what happened in 1972? Time magazine had a cover that said, stop eating bacon, right? And, and we were told not to, oh my gosh, there's cholesterol there. Let's, don't, don't you dare have cholesterol on your diet. The issue was never about cholesterol. The issue was always about retinol. That's what they were trying to take out of our diet. And so you're talking about primary pathways. The primary pathways that have been identified, wink, wink, are done in ceruloplasm deficient organisms. Ceruloplasm is the is the it's the master stress response in the body in all mammals this isn't just humans this is all mammals have this conserved multi-copper oxidase that is the exemplar protein for what its function is and it prevents the problems that's what it does because it's sensing hey is, is oxygen working right hey are we burning fat right you know what's going on and so the 
this gene that I'm talking about, hypoxia-inducible factor, that's the gene for hypoxia. It's, it's you know, HIF1 and HIF2. Those are the, those are the two uh, isoforms for that gene. Well, again, as I, as I said, there are 62 other genes that get fired off because of it, but it's most conserved function inside the cell is to make sure that copper is allowed into the cell and that copper gets to the endoplasmic reticulum and then ultimately to the Golgi network so that copper can be loaded inside that protein to make more ceruloplasmin that's fully loaded and fully functional. And that's the work of, of Carolyn White in 2009, only to find out that, that, that the oxygen level of macrophages defines the ceruloplasmin level in the body. Okay, so let's let's pause there for a second. So I love this idea of finally, finally pulling it out of you so I can understand it, is that the ceruloplasmin uh, regulation, transcription from the genes, is regulated by stressors. doesn't matter what kind of stressors, it just generalized hypoxia. We kind of identified that that's going to happen all over the place, but are there other stresses? They're like, they're physical stresses that will... Uh, upregulate the transcription of nitric oxide synthesis. So there's shear stress. So essentially your blood pressure goes up and the body says, hmm, let's make some more nitric oxide to relax things here. So it's not right. a, a chemical stress. So, you know, like, and they're heat shock proteins, right? And cold shock right. proteins kind of thing. Exactly. So what, right. what kind of stresses, or is it all kinds of stresses? As, I, as I'm coming to understand it, McKay, I think it's all kinds of stressors. Okay. I, I went from, from knowing about ceruloplasm to knowing that it had this ferrooxidase enzyme function which is essential for proper iron metabolism to now realizing that oh wait a minute there's 24 enzymes i'm not done yet it it might you might find that there's a hundred different enzymes that it expresses again it's we're, we're talking about and I, i'm not i don't think any any one person has cataloged all of its functions and I don't know why. I think it's a fascination of, wow, this is a very important uh, chemical inside our body that is this computer chip, if you will, that's responding to stress. Because, we, again, we live on a planet where there is a lot of stress, whether it's emotional or physical or metabolic or envi uh, environmental. It, I mean, there's, those are the four categories of stress. And it turns out that this protein is adaptable to all those different forms of stress. And it's and it's been there all along, and no one knew that. And it's it's been known about for 90 years, formally known about for 70 years, and yet it's not in the curricula of any practitioner training that I know of, which I think is curious. It's just it's a source of curiosity right now. Well, it's yes, we'll just see the we have cow paths we have cows and mm -hmm. they're out on pasture and the cows make cow paths and the cows sure. walk on the cow paths now why they just walk on that one little path and tread it down to bare dirt and not over the rest of the 10 acres <laughs> it's, right, it's a mystery that's right. but that but that's kind of like research is you kind of get it going in one direction yeah. 
and then you right. discover something really interesting, and then you keep circling back, and you just get deeper and deeper and deeper into the same question. And it's not even that you're unaware of those, although that's the kind of the end result. You may have been aware of those in the beginning, but you just start to ignore. And as you keep walking on the same cow path, you ignore more and more and more. And that's that's how that happens. So they're just, you know, it, it, anyway, it's probably just a that kind of thing. There's not enough funding. There's not enough interest. Like you said, it's behind the curtain and it's not drawing enough interest yet. And, you know, that this is how quote unquote discoveries are made. It's like been hiding there in plain sight for the past, what do you say, 70 years. Okay. So, so, now, so, so, so real quick, here's a real curious thing. In 1972, Peter Mitchell gets the Nobel Prize for oxidative phosphorylation. Very, very important event. But what's even more important is the title of his address. In memory of David Kylan. That was the title of his address. Well, David Kylan was a world-renowned biochemist who obsessed about copper enzymes, but he never got a Nobel Prize. But but Peter Mitchell thought he deserved it. And that, that was his honor, was to address his speech in honor of David Kahn. You can look back in the annals of Nobel laureates. There's not one that got a Nobel Prize that had anything to do with copper. And yet it's copper that enables us to live on this planet, to activate oxygen, to make energy, and to neutralize oxygen to prevent oxidants. I find that a curious juxtaposition of, of facts. I know you do. <laughs> I just think it's a cow path. <laughs> you know, nah, let's not get down. So, that, so, so, so then you're saying that scientists are no smarter than cows, is what you're saying? I'm saying that, <laughs> yeah, basically. No, no, okay, all right. That habitual things become. My point is, things. It's a habit. Why the cows walk down the path? It's a habit. And it's that, and that's that simple. And if you go to work, if your entire life is based on a, ha a habit, right? And there may be a very interesting thing going on two feet away, but you're not going to reach out and pick that interesting thing up because it's not your bread and butter. You're going to keep going down to the cow path and you're just, you're only interested in what's at the end of the cow path, right? Okay. You're going to no. go another couple inches on the cow path rather than take, you know, I took the road that's taken. Whoever's quote that is, I forget. You know, it's yeah. just it's just the way it's just the way we work. And then you've okay. got you know, then you've got a whole university department depending on your research, and you're hoping for that Nobel Prize. And so you know, you wanna you wanna figure out not something new. You just want to f the derivation on the theme to keep the the money. Yeah, flying. no, no, no. You make you make a really good argument. I I'm, I I will accept it because the most important thing is we're having. I think a very important conversation, and I appreciate that more than anything. I, I'm not looking to assign blame. I'm just grateful that people can hear this conversation and they can learn that there is something outside of that cow path that might, in fact, be the essence of what is important for our good health and well-being. So that's that's it. that's the real key to this discussion. So then, the, the obvious question is: so why why is why is let me, let, me, let me just make a couple quick points. We have, we have a blood test. We have a blood test that we can do for serum ceruloplasm. But there's two states for ceruloplasm. There's right, active. This, the A ceruloplasm that they discovered, right? Right. Yeah. So we have, we have active 
and we have inactive. And does the blood test discern between the two types? No. Ah. No, the blood... The blood test just tells us that the protein is present in the blood. It doesn't say, is it working right? It says, we've got we've got cars in the field. We don't know how many of them have working engines. Right. It's, so that's, right. that's an important thing. Why is that so important? Because when it's fully loaded and active, ceruloplasm does its work for anywhere from 120 to 132 hours. And if it's not loaded, it gets degraded in less than five hours. So we have a 95% loss of life when the copper is not inside that protein. That's a very critical fact that the that this protein, this master antioxidant protein that does lots of different things in response to stress, that it needs copper. It's it's got to have the copper top batteries, right? It's got to have six of them, at least six. And so the test is not available to test the active. Well, actually it is. It's done all the time in research studies. Right, just if, isn't available in the in the wild. For, in the wild, in the clinical, it's not, not in the conventional labs. And there's an FDA restriction on using the active blood test. Then I find out in the 1940s and 50s, right on the heels of the discovery, they figured out how to purify ceruloplasm and make it. And they were curing things like schizophrenia and LSD bad trips and People with severe histamine reactions were being cured with this purified ceruloplasm. But it's not available today for use. Again, just more CalPass, I'm sure you would argue. But I think it's fascinating that, that there is a solution out there. It's just not an available solution. And then we, we come to the, the piece de resistance is, well, is there anything that gets in the way of ceruloplasm? Well, there are many factors, but the one that I think is the biggest threat is called ascorbic acid. And what ascorbic so acid... Because every vitamin, multivitamin on the planet, plus everything else has ascorbic acid in it. Right, right. Again, when it was first discovered, people had a level of 45. Now they have between 18 and 22. For the ceruloplasm, not ascorbic acid. Exactly. Now, I'm going to... I want to... Push back here. So let's, I'm going to give you a second to explain. So, what is the ascorbic acid doing to it? And then I'm going to push back a little bit about ascorbic acid so we can really draw this out. So, okay. Um, what ascorbic acid does is it creates hydrogen peroxide. Its, its function in the cell is that it's going to generate hydrogen peroxide. The reason why alternative oncologists use high dose ascorbic acid is it overwhelms the cancer cells with hydrogen peroxide, which kills them. And the, I don't think people are thinking about, well, it, the hydrogen peroxide doesn't stop at the cancer cells. It, it affects other cells too. But, but the point is, that hydrogen peroxide causes the ceruloplasm center, that trinuclear center, to lose its intense blue light it gets bleached. That's what that's what we use hydrogen peroxide for in our laundry to help bleach. In our them. toothpaste. And in our toothpaste, right? It's it, it hydrogen peroxide is not a bad guy. Everything's about moderation, right? Everything's got a bell-shaped curve. But if you start exposing an organism to too much hydrogen peroxide, then the the, the master antioxidant protein gets bleached, and there's an all-or-nothing function to 
the loss of copper. The, the ceruloplasm protein, when it gets, when that trinuclear center gets bleached, it develops diarrhea and all of the coppers come rushing out. And then they go into the blood as unbound copper. That's not a good thing. That's not a good thing. No, of course it's not a good thing. And because we don't have access to the active versus inactive blood test, we can't discern what's really happening. And then what happens is practitioners all over the planet are trained to attack the unbound copper, thinking that it's toxic, when in fact there may have been a dietary agent or a supplement agent that is contributing to this crisis that no one's aware of. And let me let me just point out, let me just point out real quick, this this function of ascorbic acid was identified by Holmberg and Laurel in, in 1948, again by Bloomberg and Isinger in 1963, and by five other leading scientists in studies from that time period in the 60s all the way to the present day. This is not a quirk of, wow, we didn't know. This is seven, at least seven studies that I've identified where they clearly acknowledge that this ascorbic acid thing causes this loss of copper to the master antioxidant protein. Okay. I've interviewed a uh, ascorbic acid researcher from the Linus Pauling Institute, and their studies show there's no difference between taking the different forms, and there's no safety problem at all with long-term use of ascorbic acid. And even, you know, they don't, they kind of hedge on super doses like grams and grams a day, but they're taking, you know, basically a couple grams a day. They haven't found any problem anywhere. What are they, so I'm going to softball question to you. What are they missing? I, if ascorbic I think what, acid is doing uh, all this damage, what are they missing? Uh, I th well, th they don't have access to the active ceruloplasm blood test. They don't have, they're not studying iron metabolism, uh, either in the blood or in the tissue. Again, there, there is no blood test for measuring iron homeostasis in the tissue. You can do a needle biopsy, which is very painful, or you can do a, a T2 MRI, which is very expensive. But that, that type of study is not being done routinely to see what's the metabolic impact. They're also not doing detailed studies of oxidative stress or inflammatory markers to see are those being stirred up as I would suspect they are. I'm not sure what they're measuring in the way of outcomes, but again, I think we also have a, a short-term, medium-term, long-term. In the short term, maybe it doesn't, it doesn't uh, dust up, but in the medium term and the long term, I can assure you that uh, the fact that ascorbic acid is a recognized chemical to increase iron absorption, what does that really mean? It means it goes into the tissue faster because of the presence of ascorbic acid. Well, getting into the tissue isn't necessarily the objective. The objective is to have healthy iron recycling in the body. It's called the reticuloendothelial system. I call it the recycling system because it's easier to understand when you say it that way. And so that recycling system is what allows us to replace the 1% of red blood cells that are dying every day. 1%, you know, 2.5 trillion red blood cells need to be replaced every day. And you got to have enough iron to support that. 
And so if you don't have 25 milligrams of iron, you can't replace that 2.5 trillion red blood cells. And, and there's only one metal that's critical in that function. It's called bioavailable copper. You can't recycle iron unless you have bioavailable copper. And that's the part that's missed on every level of science in medicine is not recognizing that copper and iron are joined at the hip of the ceruloplasm protein. Okay, so let's pause here and pivot a, a little bit more. We're kind of moving more into the, the practical here. And so let's talk about vitamin C for a second, ascorbic acid, and then natural forms of it. So we know that human beings and guinea pigs can't make their own vitamin C. So we need some dietarily because otherwise we do get scurvy and <clears throat> collagen starts falling apart and we start bleeding places we shouldn't bleed and teeth fall out. It's, it's ugly. So we, right. we know about that. Now, well, where, actually we don't, we, we don't, that, that's the problem. Well, is there's a difference between hyaluronic acid and hexaluronic acid. And hyaluronic acid is the copper-based enzyme that's essential for making collagen. And hexaluronic acid is another way of saying ascorbic acid. And Albert Sven-Gorgi in the 1930s was studying hyaluronic acid very intensely. And in fact, in July 4th, 1936, he wrote a letter to Nature Journal. I think that's a pretty important publication. And he very openly said, I've got a copy of the letter. He said, ascorbic acid does not cure scurvy. The guy who got the Nobel Prize 18 months later was very direct with the editors of Nature Journal and said, it doesn't do what you think it does. That's a, that's a glitch in the history of ascorbic acid that no one likes to talk about, but that's a factual event. He wrote a letter and he denounced the function of ascorbic acid as it relates to scurvy. So that's, that blows apart the whole I know Linus Pauling used it, da 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 da. This is this starts to become a very uncomfortable conversation because there are these cow paths that have been created, but not enough people are going out into the pasture to see what's the real story. So my question, Morley, I'm not going to argue about the history of that. My question is then: we need some ascorbic acid because we don't make any. Right. We need all mammals. Need, all mammals. Need, and then just, just let me use okay, the, the okay. vitamin C. You can get technical after and, and correct me and make the corrections you want to make. But we need, okay. we need some. All mammals have this gene. Guinea pigs and humans don't. So we need to eat some. So what's the proper way to eat it? Very important question. Um, we need to understand that ascorbic acid is the prooxidant shell of a six part molecule. That, that whole food vitamin C complex is different than ascorbic acid. And the, a very important way to get it is there are foods that readily have it. A, a very rich source of, of a whole food C is pine needle tea. Take some, some pine needles off of your favorite pine tree and steep it in hot water and it releases the the, the vitamin into that water. Um, maca, maca root in India grows as a weed. And I've got a client over there 
who's 93 years old, she's cured her low hemoglobin by making maca tea every day. And she feels great now. She was, you know, faced with low oxygen. Her her hemoglobin was going down into the sevens. Well, she's back in the the 11s now. She's feeling pretty good. Um, We know about citrus fruits. We know lemons and limes and oranges. And there are many different sources as they exist in their whole food form are very different. And this is this goes back to the, the pioneering research of Royal Lee, who founded Standard Process. He was very openly revealing that there's a difference in the luminescence and the chemical properties of whole food C versus ascorbic acid. And there's there's evidence you can find the pictures on the internet comparing what ascorbic acid looks like versus what whole food C looks like. Then we find out that, in fact, the, the active enzyme in whole food C is called tyrosinase. And tyrosinase is a three-sided um, pyramid that has copper at all four points. So it's, it's, a, it's a legitimate source of bioavailable copper that helps to feed the body's need for copper. But again, the, the key is, is the farmer feeding the soil properly with nutrients and minerals to enable the, the actual incorporation of copper into the fruit. That's a, it's a very important part of the process. And so there's this, again, legacy of confusion about whole food C versus ascorbic acid that's been raging ever since Sven Gorky got his Nobel in 1937. That, that again, we're, we're faced with 80 years of debate about what did he really get his Nobel Prize for? And what was the real research? And the fact that he wrote that letter suggests that maybe there's more to the story. Again, I'm not I'm not assigning blame. I'm just I'm fascinated by the fact that the the cow path isn't the whole story. I think that's what people need to know is that there is more to the pasture than the cow path. I I love your analogy because it's so important for people. We we do take the, the road that's been more traveled. And for whatever reason, I took the road less traveled, as inspired by M. Scott Peck many years ago, and and I've uncovered a lot of fascinating information that I think is at the heart of how people can rethink their disease state, rethink their symptoms, and revitalize their body with a protocol that seems to be working for a lot of people around the world. Awesome, because this is how I want to wrap up, and you've you've led me right there. So. Let's assume that somebody with Lyme disease and who's not recovering, part of the issue, or maybe all the issue, is that they lack ceruloplasmin to recognize with, deal with the extra whatever, the stress that's going on from the different failure systems failing with Lyme disease and infections and everything else that comes along with it, just everything, everything, everything. How... Do you go about that? So you mentioned your protocol. So what can somebody do to begin to take a look at your information and say, okay, this is an avenue I really want to pursue. You know, I don't understand everything, but it makes, gee, it makes a lot of sense. What can they do? Well, I appreciate the opportunity to, to share that. Real quick, parenthetically, it's important for people to know that the, the clients that I've worked with who have Lyme were all iron toxic. The iron was stuck in their tissue because it couldn't recycle because of a lack of bioavailable copper. 
many of those people also took high doses of antibiotics. And what people need to understand about antibiotics is they're very disruptive to copper metabolism. They really, they're not, they're not um, subtle about it. And the third factor that's very important for people with a condition like Lyme or any kind of autoimmune condition is they are in a state of fear that they're broken. And that fear becomes an emotional uh, harbinger for attracting more iron, and it prevents the, the body's ability to uh, heal itself. And so I put a lot of emphasis, not just in the protocol, which I'll tell people where it is, but also in the importance of emotional clearing to allow that release of fear to get out of the way of the body's ability to heal itself. The protocol itself, uh, people can find it on the website, is rcp123.org, RCP as in root cause protocol, rcp123.org. We talk about it on the MAG Facebook group. That was where I cut my teeth. Um, Social media was with the Magnesium Advocacy Group, and there's ongoing dialogue about the protocol and what it does. There's also, and that's that's a Facebook group, there's also a Facebook page now that also focuses on the RCP. And then if people have questions that they want to ask directly, uh, my email address is my first and last name, MorleyRobbins at gmail.com. And my phone number, people always wince when they go, oh my God, he's giving me his phone number. Um, but it's area code 847-922-8061. I've never met a question I didn't enjoy. And I'm happy to answer people's uh, really genuine need to know and better understand this. And I, McKay, I can't tell you how grateful I am that we are having yet another conversation about this. Because you are, uh, I, I, I respect you uh, as, a, as a clinician. I respect you as a social media artist, if you will. And I really appreciate the ability to reach your followers with this message, because I think it's that important. such an interesting interview and you know when people get sick with Lyme disease it's like the norms of how we deal with health or how we keep ourselves healthy doesn't apply to us anymore what do you mean by that it's like oh for most of the population gluten's fine but if you try to eat bread with Lyme disease it's like oh you're dealing with all of this inflammation that can be used to just keep you sicker like that sort of thing well it's like walking on a tightrope yeah so if you're walking down the middle of the street and there's nobody around you you can wobble a little bit and you're fine Mm -hmm. if you're on a tightrope a little wobble pushes you off so most people can handle the wobble of eating gluten and the extra inflammation causes and just deal with it yep and I just, Lyme people can't. No, Lyme people can't. And I just think it's very useful to have people out there like Morley who find that tightrope and where things like he was saying with the ascorbic acids. Like maybe for the most part, people are fine with ascorbic acid, but there's also maybe those few people out there who's like, okay, this distinction would actually really help me. And it's worth a try. Exactly. So if you're taking high doses of ascorbic acid, and there are a lot of people out there who are, try a natural source. Rose hips, 
Acerola cherry, camu camu is another one. There are all kinds of fruits out there with, with high vitamin C content. See if that makes a difference. See if including that extra copper molecule helps you feel better. All right. So that's something that's easy to try. Give it a whirl. What can it harm? Right? Exactly. And the plus you're getting all those extra polyphenols and good stuff like that too. The other antioxidants that are in fruits as well. All right. As you all know, we have three phases on our Lyme journey. The Reboot, Resolve, Restore. If you'd like a overview map of that, just head on over to LimeNinjaRadio.com and you will see links to all the extras that we have and you'll see that map there. It's really to give you a framework for understanding where you are and what you need to do next. We want you to have a plan A and plan B for each section. You need to have a fallback position in case what you're doing right now doesn't work. If you're doing high-dose antibiotics or IV antibiotics, what's your plan if it doesn't work? Don't put all your eggs in that basket. This is Lyme disease. It's full of surprises. And despite all the headlines out there saying that, yeah, we've got a cure now, we've got a breakthrough. Yeah, maybe they do. I hope they do. That would be awesome. Then we can shut down this podcast and talk about something else. Like I've got a lot conspiracy of, theories about Lyme disease. I've got a lot of opinions about Game of Thrones. <laughs> <laughs> the Ninja the Game of Thrones podcast. <laughs> Spare us, please. I know. And anyway, so but the point the point of that is be prepared if things don't go your way. This is, again, this is Lyme disease. And until we have, without a doubt, you know, this is the magic antibiotic or the series of antibiotics or the antibiotic and herbal formula, whatever it is that finally puts this spirochete back where it belongs in the dead category, we have to deal with the unknown. And when you're dealing with the unknown, you need to have fallback positions. And that's a plan B. So make sure you've got a plan B Whatever stage you are, if you're coming back into the world after feeling bad for so long, if you finally feel like you've got the infection beat back and you're depleted, you need to have several strategies there of what you're going to be doing. Just don't put all your eggs in one basket. It's not a good idea. All right. That's my loving comment for the day. Okay. If you have feedback for us, suggestions, Ideas for guests, we'd love to hear from you. Send an email to feedback at LimeNinjaRadio.com. And if you like what we're doing here at Lime Ninja Radio, hit the subscribe button so you won't miss an episode. And if you really like what we're doing, leave us a review on your podcast app. It helps us reach more people like you. Yes, indeedy. We have a few more reviews. I love it. Thank you very much for taking the time to do it. The rest of you who haven't done it yet, what are you waiting for? Come on. <laughs> chop, chop. And last, as you longtime Lime Ninjas know, this podcast would not be complete unless we left you with the Lime Ninja fact of the day. Did you know ninjas ignore the periodic table because ninjas only recognize the element of surprise? <laughs> i
Young Ninja Radio is a purely public broadcast and is not intended to be personalized medical advice for any individual's specific situation. Each individual's medical situation is unique, and Lime Ninja Radio should not be relied upon and/or considered as personalized medical advice. Lime Ninja Radio is not licensed to render medical advice and should be considered simply the public opinion of Lime Ninja Radio and its guests. Recommendations on specific treatment options are not intended to address any listener's particular medical situation. As always, contact your physician before considering any new treatment.